there is an old Swedish proverb that goes, those who wish to sing always find a song. My guest today on the program, well, he's never had a problem finding the songs. And for the last 40 years or so, his songs have never had a problem finding you. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. When you need a shoulder you can cry on, I'll be there to wipe your tears away. When it takes someone you can rely on, you can call me any time of day. Someone who really cares When you need Someone who'll always love you You're not alone You're not alone When you're lost And stumbling in the darkness I'll be there to share a little light of my guest today on the program, Paul Carrick. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul Carrick. I don't know how else to put it, so I'll just say it as simply as I can. Paul Carrick's voice is one of the world's great superpowers. The Sheffield-born Carrick got his start at 19, playing keyboards in warm dust for a handful of albums. From there, he formed Ace, who had the massive international hit How long? After they broke up in 1977, he played with Frankie Miller for a bit, then he joined Roxy Music as their keyboardist. Now, you're going to see as we go along here that Paul Carrick never stopped working. The guy is an engine. He put his first solo album out in 1980, then he joined Squeeze, who had a rather massive hit with Tempted that featured Carrick on lead vocals. Around the same time, he had a band called Noise to Go, with Nick Lowe, then that band became Nick Lowe and his Cowboy Outfit, who not only put out two really cool albums, they were John Hyatt's backing band for side two of his Riding with the King record. By the way, we're just getting started, but I promise I'll make it fast. Carrick did session work for The Pretenders, Madness, and The Smiths for their debut album. Then he joined Mike and the Mechanics, logged a few seismic hits with them, you know, The Living Years and Silent Running. Then he became a member of Roger Waters' touring band, put out another solo record, had a hit with Don't Shed a Tear, then formed a band with Rupert Hine, rejoined Squeeze, (laughs) this is crazy, for the Some Fantastic Place record, had a song he co-wrote with Don Felder and Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles, covered by the Eagles, and that track ended up being the most played song in the United States in 1995. What, you thought it was Hold My Hand by Hootie and the Blowfish? Nope. 
You thought it was Creep by TLC? Not even close. It was Love Will Keep Us Alive by the Eagles. Now you're really ready for quiz night at the pub. Back to Paul Carrick. Carrick kept up his solo career, but he still had time to join Ringo Starr's all-star band, collaborate with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and join Eric Clapton's band. I told you, he doesn't stop. Over the years, he's also played with Simply Red, B.B. King, Elton John, and the list, as they say, goes on and on and on. There's actually a great BBC4 documentary about Paul called The Man with the Golden Voice, which is very much worth your time to watch. Paul's new album, One on One, is his 18th solo album, and it is fabulous. A stirring collection that's about as soulfully precise as it gets. Carrick's voice is filled with a timeless blend of warmth and groove, and this album proves that time can't touch him. He sounds as effortless and as affecting as ever. It's yet another winning entry into a pretty flawless discography. Now, before I get to our conversation, I mentioned Don't Shed a Tear about 25 minutes ago in this introduction, but I want to tell you a story about that song. About four or five years ago, a girl broke my heart. Yes, it has happened to me. It's happened to you. We get through it. But I was having a tough time. This was when the wound was fairly raw. And one night, I did the sad guy grocery shop, right? You've seen that guy. Well, I was him that night. Uh, It was late, and I was standing in the pasta aisle, and I was feeling pretty terrible. And suddenly, Don't Shed a Tear by Paul Carrot came on. And I stood there, and I listened to the whole thing. Those four minutes of music where Carrick reassuringly and defiantly says, my life won't end without you, was more valuable than a million dollars worth of therapy. Paul Carrick gave me this weird feeling that everything was going to be okay and that I was stronger than the heartbreak that was killing me. And you know what? I was. Remember how I said at the very beginning of all this, that his music has a way of finding you? Well, that's exactly what it did that night. And I'll never forget it. It was incredible. And you know what? I ended up being okay a lot faster than I thought. And I attribute Paul Carrick with all the help I needed. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with the mighty Paul Carrick. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers. The podcast. I was thinking about how hard it's been the last couple of years for people that are touring musicians, musicians in general. And then I read that you were dealing with shingles. I didn't even realize that. How is your psyche and how is your health? How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, it was, it was unpleasant and it went on for a little bit, five or six weeks, but um, it was inconvenient as well. 
because I was, you know, I've been making an album, like <laughs> me and uh, a million other people. But um, I was making an album at home and I had a schedule, um, you know, a release, uh, you know, it was three quarters of the way through, had a release and sort of told people it was coming. And then I got this shingles and uh, I couldn't do anything for a few weeks, but um, I'm fine. Yeah. When you are a creative person and you can't do something for a couple of weeks, I would imagine that must feel like you're shackled. It did and it didn't. I mean, uh, I wasn't too, you know, the, 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 the creative thing's one thing, but it was just not a very nice thing. I don't recommend it, actually, yeah. getting it. It's not fun. And I actually, I, 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 not to dwell on it, but, you know, since you ask, um, I know I was aware of shingles because my wife's had it in the past and I know a couple of mates have had it and I was getting this pain in my side and I was, I thought I pulled a muscle or something. And, and then I said to my missus, we just kept an eye on it because what happens is you get this pain for a couple of days, then you get this rash. And the theory is if you get on this rash immediately that you get these antiviral drugs and you need to do that immediately. And, and it, so, which I did, and I thought, oh, well, I'll be fine. And the doctor said, well, do you need anything for the pain or anything? I don't know. Nah, I'll be fine. I've got some paracetamol. <laughs> that was over the weekend. And by the Monday, I was like, please give me some. But there's actually nothing they can give you. It's, it's nerve pain and, and it's difficult to, uh, to deal with. It's a waiting game, right? Like it's just a waiting game. You have to just wait it out. Yeah, I mean, it's like I say, it's unpleasant. It's painful. It, it's it's kind of there's a, the kind of muscle pain, and there's this like it's like sunburn. You know, you can't stand to put your t-shirt on or you to sleep in bed. You don't want to move, and and you feel crap. But um, anyway, it's it's gone now. Does the creative brain just literally turn off when you're dealing with that kind of pain? Like you can't even think about music. Well, I was thinking about it only in terms of I'd promised, you know, it wasn't like the world was holding its breath, but there were, you know, some fans who, and I'd said it, an album was coming and they paid for it already. And I, I felt a bit responsible about that. But no, the creative thing had to, I had to take a back seat. Looking at your career, you're not a guy who has ever put the creative part in the backseat because you're, you're really just... You're always so match fit. You're always so busy and doing so much. You're very prolific, um, very active. That must have been an incredibly weird space to, to be in for you because you seem like you've never slowed down. <laughs> You're always working. Well, certainly the last um, 20 years, which is a blip on my career, <laughs> but, uh, or the last 10 years, you know, I've been really busy. It's, unbe it's unbelievable. I've been, you know, I've been making records touring around Europe you know as an independent artist and and touring with uh, like with Eric Clapton and so it's been a fantastic who could have thought you know at that at this right base so I'm just been making the most of it you know and enjoying things uh, while I can I'm not I'm no I'm not afraid of hard work I mean I was brought up with the curse of the work ethic from my parents, I guess. And uh, so I was just grateful to be doing great work and, you know, 
things were going very, very well. Um, and then, and then of course this whole COVID thing was put the spoke in the wheel, you know? Yeah. I imagine the conversations with friends of yours who are musicians, there must've been some anxiety about like, when are we getting back out on the road? When are we, what do we do? What is our, what is the shape of our career look like in the next five years with this? Well, yeah, I mean, that even occurred to me when we were on stage doing the last gig before it was shut down, um, which was a fantastic gig. We were playing in London at the London Palladium, which is a real, you know, iconic theatre. And uh, it, it was, everybody kind of was getting the the vibe that things were going to get in hairy and it, things were going to be shutting down. And uh, But it was an amazing gig, actually, because the, the audience was so up for it. It was unusual, you know, like for us, for for a, a London audience, so enthusiastic. And, uh, but it did cross my mind. Well, this is London Palladium. I'm going to be 70 next year. Is this, is this it? You know, but as I say, and things have been going so strong in the, in the touring aspect of it in, in the UK particularly. And, um, so it did, it did cross my mind, but because um, we had a whole year lined up with my band and with Eric, it was a whole, a whole year. But then it was just general anxiety after that. It was more about to do with my family. You know, I've got four grown-up kids, a couple of grandkids, and they're living in London and things were getting a bit crazy in there, you know, for, for the first weeks. So it's like that kind of anxiety took over. But, um, and then I started coming in my studio just to mess around and take my mind off things. And next, and I, I thought we were going to be off for a couple of months and we'd get back. But, um, and then it became apparent that it was going to be a bit more than that. Did you find that your creativity was something that was, something like a bomb for the anxiety? Did it help you to be working and being creative in terms of quelling that just general feeling of, of tension? Yeah, I think it did. I think it did help just, just to, just to have something to do. I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I've got a space I could work and I'm kind of used to working on my own a lot in, in, the, in the studio, you know, in the writing stages and sorry about that. Um, so that wasn't unusual. That wasn't unusual. It was good to have that have that space, you know. I talked to Steve Hackett, and he said he plays every day. And I talked to Tony Kay from Yes, and says he said he doesn't. Um, yeah. And and I understand both. But what is your daily practice? Because I, in my brain, I imagine you as somebody who is very regimented, and I imagine you play every day. But is that true? Well, probably. I mean, uh, I, I'm a self-taught musician um totally um and I, I i started to well initially as i said when the lockdown first was on i thought we were going to be back on in a couple of months so initially i had a little break we'd done 30 shows in the uk so i was catching my breath and then i thought well you know we're going to be getting back so i need to keep things ticking over i need to keep the voice going you know as a rule, I'm not really a, a, a practicer because we're out there doing it, right? You know, you know, or or I'm in here 
working on new stuff. So I, I, I don't generally just practice for the sake of it, you know. And how do you, in, in terms of, because, you know, I, I teach college for a living. And if mm. I lose my voice, I can't, I can't lecture, I can't talk. Yeah. Um, so I'm very protective of, you know, if like I always think about that kind of stuff. You're a singer, um, in addition to obviously to, you know, to to uh, your instrumentation uh, skills. Um, how protective are you of your voice and how mindful are you of like what you eat and like I, maybe certain foods aren't the best for that? Have you learned a kind of. Yeah, I've learned a little bit. As I say, I'm totally self-taught, but there's so much information now. I wish I wish we'd had youtube when i when i was learning you know rather than listening to records how does he do that um that's the one thing i gotta say i joke about it but it's in a way i think it's true there's one one thing i didn't miss about and and, and being in lockdown was that thought of oh, is my voice okay today you know getting up in the day oh no you know we got a show and i'm not you know what's good so because that's uh across to bear you know as the singer and um yeah i do try and take care of myself um not fanatically but i mean i try to eat right and i don't do any stupid thing i don't smoke and stuff like that and i've learned how to do warm-ups and stuff which is essential now i didn't used to even bother doing that but it makes a big difference now and uh, so, yeah, it's, it's the, one of the downsides of, of, of the road is so much of your time and your life is spent thinking about the show, you know, an hour and a half or two hours. And, and you're thinking, you know, you've got to be in shape and, and, you know, it's a little bit of pressure. I mean, it's self-inflicted pressure, but nevertheless, if you've got people coming to a show and paid money, come and see you want to be somewhere near your best mm-hmm. you want you definitely want to be the best you can but you know I think it's not that feeling of having to prove yourself or maybe it is I don't know but you know you want to be you want to give a good account of yourself every night you know I've never been one of those who wants to be in a blaze of glory for three shows and then can't talk you know so providing I'm avoid you know the unavoidable, which is, you know, the basic, the, the coughs and colds and the seasonal viruses and all that. Uh, I, I, you know, I do okay. But as I say, it's a, it's a lot of time spent, which is valuable. Time is valuable now, especially when you get to my age. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there is, like I spoke to Graham Bonnet and he, I said, how are you still singing so well? And he said, I don't know, because he said he, he still smokes and he still is reckless he? with his voice. Yeah. Right. And he's like, That's I don't amazing. know. Good genetics, I guess. And because his voice, because he's been in his 70s and he sounds as powerful as ever. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, um, I, I mean, we did, a, we did a show a couple of weeks ago, the first one, outdoor type event. And um, yeah, I was singing great. But it, it, it's that level um of intensity on a one-off situation it's marvelous because you can you know you know you haven't got to do it for another seven shows in a row or something you know what i mean right but you know i mean i've never been you know like you mentioned graham i mean you know one of those guys up there going for it you know you know i've got different aspects of what i do and I've been developing other aspects. I mean, you used to, 
pitch everything as high as possible to get the excitement and the and all that. But uh, you know, I quite enjoy crooning as well, to be honest with you. And and sort of on that note, thinking about the sort of velocity of music, I mean, punk rock really hit when you were in your 20s did did punk rock do anything for you at all or did it did you kind of ignore it no i it didn't really it wasn't really for me because i i i'm not exactly a um an ang i was never an angry young man like that. <laughs> i mean even when i was young, i was a hippie anyway you know was, but um so i thought that was my career over. I thought, well, that's me. They're, they're all singing about people like me that, <laughs> that need to get out of the way. And, you know, so I thought, well, well, that's me done. But so I just sort of treaded water for a while, trying to learn to be, become a better musician and do the sort of session circuit. There was still a, you know, sessions, but I used to be terrified most of the time because uh, I was sure that they'd, come up with something that I couldn't hack technically you know, yeah. on those sessions. I get to the sessions and think, oh my God. Are, when you do session work, are you always credited or are you sometimes uncredited? Often uncredited, I guess. But I mean, it, it's not really an issue now because it's, it's not really there anymore, that kind of work. You know? Is that right? So much. I don't think so. I, well, I don't do much of that sort of stuff. Right. I, it, yeah, as I say, I didn't particularly enjoy it other than, you know, I was playing with musicians and I've, I've always just learned on the job, you know. But my musical instincts have got me, you know, quite a long way where I could do something simple and what was needed rather than something technically great or anything. It's incredible to think that you're that you're self-taught, and and I think that because your versatility as a musician is unbelievable, you seem like you're a really quick study. Um, that it, whether you're playing with Eric or you're playing with Squeeze or you're doing your own stuff, it seems like you you know how to shape shift and move where you need to move. Um, it's it's a really it's a it's an incredible skill to be a, that versatile and also be self-taught. Yeah, well, like I say, if only there had been YouTube, <laughs> not kidding yeah. about because uh, it would have been helpful. Uh, literally, I've, I've learned by ear. I mean, I couldn't play it. I started out playing drums. So you don't need to know anything about notes or anything like that, <laughs> which is useful. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a musical gene there. You know, I, I think I got it from my father. Uh, unfortunately, I lost him when we, I was quite young, about 11 years old. And um, But nevertheless, his family were musical and um I, I definitely think there is a, a musical gene and i've got good ear good instincts and um i like all kinds of music but it's been one of the fantastic things about you know being amongst eric's various lineups over the last uh, eight or nine years been to play with guys because basically eric's music obviously is quite simple in, in, in a lot of ways. And, um, but to get to play with some of these people like, you know, S Steve Gadd, Steve Jordan, Nathan East, Willie Weeks, all these guys, because in another situation, I wouldn't be able to stay afloat, you know, because th those guys can play anything, you know, jazz or wh whatever, you know, but it's just been so fantastic to, 
to play with them and be, uh, you know, accepted and uh, respected. It was very good. Did you find that playing with people like that also lifted your game? Do you think that you sort of, you rose your, in terms of your own level? Uh, I hope so. I, I think so. Yeah. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what specifically you learn from these situations. Obviously something, things just rub off on you, you know? So uh, I don't know if I'm any technically any more proficient, but um, as I say, I think it's, it's hard to quantify what you, what you pick up, but you, you never, you definitely do. What's your, how would you describe Jordan um, as a player? A monster. Monster. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Um, powerful. And uh, no, he's really something else. They're, they're, they've all been great. I played with four great drummers on this. Is it four? Um, obviously, Steve Gadd, Steve Jordan, Sonny Emery, um, Henry Spinetti, all great in their own way just been a treat to play with these guys what is the closest relationship on stage when you're when you're playing and you're at the keyboards who who do you, who are you paying most attention to is it the, would it be the drummer no. or is it... well it, it it drums important yeah and i'm i'm sitting opposite the drummer right and i'm i, I i've a, kind of have a rhythmic thing anyway i think that's one of my yeah yeah good attributes is you know have a good groove and but no we're, we're all listening to eric and uh, we want we want to support him and um and when he takes off you know it's something else it's something special so and these guys can go you know you know gad is particularly you know he's a great listener and um and wherever the wherever the guy goes He's right there, you know. He picks it up immediately, you know. I mean, uh, I know on uh, one tour I did, and we, we were doing the slow blues, and I'd think, "Oh God, here's my solo coming up," and I've got twelve bars, and I got another twelve bars, and you know. And then I just do something a little bit rhythmic, and Gad was there, just and he just made me sound great. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. And. <laughs> And Jordan is one of those guys. I know, I know Jordan's going to go out with the Stones, and um, I mean, and there was some backlash about that. And I thought, what's the backlash? Like, I couldn't think of anybody better. Well, no, me either. I mean, uh, he's great, and he's a very strong character as well. He's a very forceful uh, personality. He's made, he's played with everybody, and uh, he's produced records. He's not. He's not just a drummer, and I don't, that's no disrespect to drummers, um, but he's more than that, you know, and, uh, but he's a powerhouse. What, what made you... I, I'd be very interested to hear the Stones with him. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I mean... I don't know how Charlie Watts feels about it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think he's given it his blessing. Um, what made you move from the drums originally like it seems like because you're so rhythmic i would imagine that's a pretty comfortable place for you i, I wasn't very good i was just a kid you know playing in a little school band and then but um i wanted to join the local soul band who were quite good and they needed an organ player 
and I literally persuaded my my mum to sign the papers to what we call higher purchase where you pay in installments and I, I got um I, I bought an organ and, the, and uh, somebody showed me a couple of chords and uh, I played at the back and uh bluffed my way through <laughs> was your mother supportive of your musical endeavors not really in in uh, well having said that i mean look my dad was very supportive he, he liked music he loved music he encouraged me and my brother my brother played guitar um to cut a long story short because i know i've spoke about this many times but my, my father had a fatal accident at work and um i um you know it was devastating obviously so i was i was 11 years old my brother was 15 and i remember the following christmas i i had this tin pot drum kit that i'd made up from bits and pieces anyway the following christmas my mother again with the higher purchase thing they bought me a real kit of drums oh. you know I mean, it was a fantastic thing. It was this Trixon drum set, a Trixon Telstar. It was out of this world for me, you know. And I um, can't remember why we started with this question. But anyway, basically, I sold the drums eventually, you know, and I bought this organ in order to uh, join the local soul band. Wow. And and your mom, you were saying she was... She oh, was that's right. Well, she supported... Well, I mean, there you go. She, they did that for me, which, uh, but she was very, um, I'm sure she was very anxious about the whole thing, especially when I started to take it seriously and uh, went off to Germany, age 17, you know, to play on the Reeperbahn in Hamburg. <laughs> I mean, she was rightly concerned. Yeah. Yeah. So no, she, she. I think it caused her much, much anxiety, and um, I think she would have much rather I got myself a proper job. But I wasn't cut out for a proper job. I was used. I was useless at most things, and uh, apart from soccer and music, they were my two loves. I, unlike my dad, who was could turn his hand to anything, very handy. I, I was hopeless at anything like that. I wasn't academic. I just wanted to be in a band that simple yeah i mean and I, and I think it seems like you knew that really early on some people don't know that till later some people but you you were able to sort of assess it and say like this is this is the comfortable place for me this is this is what i want to do anything but comfortable it was very very hand to mouth yeah you know i mean we were disgusting we were filthy dirty sleeping you know and rooms and squats and all that all that sort of stuff and but it was an adventure. It was just great. Long days in summer, walking by the sea. Warm rays of sunshine shining down on me. Dancing in the moonlight, footprints in the sand.
tenure with Clapton's band, did it change the way that you would come back and make your own records under your own name in terms of how you would run the show? Did you learn anything in terms of organization or leadership or did you, was it always just business as usual? No, I think I'd started to get the hang of being leader of my band. Um, and when I'm, and they very much looked to me to be the leader, you know, I, I don't have any name musicians as such in my band. I used to do that when I'd do a little solo to a short tour or something. I'd assemble it from the guys I knew from the session circuits, who guys who played with Pink Floyd or, you know, Eric or this, these great players. And we, it was on a minor level. And I always felt that was a burden because I thought, they, no, these guys, I'm not paying them enough and the hotels are rubbish and, you know, the travel is rubbish. And so I hooked up with a band from my hometown. I've lived in London now most of my life, but I'm from Sheffield originally. And I hooked up with like a, a, a band. I bolted myself onto them 
and they were very <laughs> respected towards me, you know, and looked to me to be the leader. And those guys are still with me now. Oh. And we've progressed together, you know. And um, so I got the hang of being the, the leader in that situation. And of course, when I play with Eric, I'm back to being a support and he's the leader. That's the way for me, it works best. I, you know, I, democratic bands at this stage, a little bit too hard work. <laughs> I think it's kind of works to have focal point and, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I've been on both sides, all sides of these situations. And I think, you know, I think I know how to do it. And then you do it by example. I mean, Eric doesn't really crack the whip. He just gets people in he likes and everybody works together for it to support him. And that's kind of how it works for me. In my bad, I don't need to shout at guys or do anything like that. You know, we just, nah. Do you I know mean, what I'm trying to say. I do, I do, yeah, and and it and it makes it a little more seamless and effortless that way. Yeah, well, we want to enjoy us. You know, we want to enjoy what we do and have have, have fun. And right. uh, you know, I don't I don't need to crack the whip with any of my, my guys. They they would walk to the gig if I asked them to. Do you know what I mean? Or they, they don't take liberties. You know, they they love they love the gig, and um, so it's been great for us all. You can also hear it when people use different guys for each record. You can hear that, you know, there's, there's something that feels totally different. Whereas when you use the same guys for the last couple of records, it's like, there's, there's a kind of flow. There's a fluidity to it that I don't think would be there otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I have experimented with other guys recording wise, because my, the, the, the guys I have are definitely, happy in the life situation and they quite like the fact if that's if something's established you know a song is kind of established to some extent whereas sometimes you may want a little more creativity from a person that's used to being in that situation where creative is it is expected from them do you know what i'm trying to say yeah yeah um i wish i did <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. And I think, I think also that there is, you know, you kind of develop a kind of language live that is yeah. really organic, right? Exactly. Yeah. True. But it's good in some, some ways to have that start in place. I, you know, I have this 12 year old ver in my brain. I'm still like a 12 year old where I think like, oh, Paul must hang out with his band. Like, you guys must be friends and you guys must go to soccer matches. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's actually true. Um, and the same thing with Eric, where I go, oh, Paul Carrick is, is playing with Clapton. They must hang out. I don't know yeah. if these things are true. I mean, do you hang out with your band? Do you hang out with the guys in Clapton's band? No, there's not a lot. No, I'll tell you why. Because I live, as I say, sort of London. And my band are all in the, they're up north in Sheffield. So we, there's not a lot of hanging out. Um, but when we get together, you know, when we're on the road, obviously, and it's great because, as I say, there's no, they, they don't take liberties. They're dedicated as I am to, to the gig. You know, nobody's taking liberty. Likewise with Eric. I mean, no, I don't really see Eric from tour to tour, to be honest. There. And um, it's not a wild 
rock and roll scene. <laughs> you know, they were professionals. Right. We're professionals, you know. Yeah. Um, I saw the documentary uh, Made in Sheffield years ago about the electronic music in the late 70s and early 80s there. Did that stuff have any impression on you at all? It wasn't like Human League from there? Yeah, there were Human League, Heaven 17, yeah. ABC, bands like that. No, I was kind of not, in, I wasn't really involved in that at all. I think primarily because I was in the uh, opposite end of the spectrum because I was involved with people like Nick Lowe. Nick and I had a band together and, you know, Nick wouldn't have a synthesizer anywhere near the studio. He hated them. Um, I've more, more of a diverse taste in music and I thought that was all quite interesting what those guys were all doing. And I, I, it's just, it, to some extent, I mean, we, we had a lot of fun with, with Nick and his, and the various outfits and, um, the various incarnations of, uh, of that band, but it was very sort of low tech rock and roll, um, almost skiffle at times, you know, it was the antithesis of, but I, I always thought, you know, I, I, it would have been quite interesting. And, and that's kind of where my involvement with Mike and the mechanics came about when, um, when the uh, Nick Lowe sort of situation got a little bit old, we all, had a great time and everything, but it was, it was, it ran its course basically. And, and coincidentally, that's when I got the call from Mike Rutherford to uh, get involved with Mike and the mechanics. And um, so that was quite interesting because uh, it, obviously that was, you know, synth, a lot of synth stuff yeah. and all that, uh, that kind of sound with, with me singing some of the songs. So I tended to dismiss some of the, the synth stuff early on, but going back now in my 50s and listening to someone like Martin Fry, holy cow, I don't think I realized how great of a singer and how great of a songwriter he actually is. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. As I say, I, I wasn't really involved in that. I suppose I was looking at it thinking, wow, again, you know, like with the punk thing earlier, that's me done. You know, these are all... <laughs> good-looking dudes making great videos and great records that sounded fantastic on the radio. And, um, and me and Nick and the lads are, you know, these scruffy Herberts going around <laughs> <laughs> hating the idea of doing a video. You know, we all hated that aspect of it. And at that time in the early 80s, of course, it was quite important. So that was another reason, actually, because I hated doing videos. I looked, I sucked. You know, I looked terrible in them things. I dreaded it. My hair's falling out, you know, <laughs> all the rest of it, you know. But you always looked comfortable. I mean, you maybe you didn't feel comfortable, but you always looked. I always thought like that. I wish I'd not... known. I wish I'd known I looked comfortable. And I'm, I, you know, but anyway. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, because I remember I always thought of you as a guy who looked completely at ease in front of the camera. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> right. Right. I should have took up acting. You should, exactly. <laughs> you, uh, one thing I, I've always admired about you is that you seem like you're a great collaborator. You seem like you can work with anybody. Um, what do you think the secret is to being such a good collaborator? I think it's been. I think it's a double-edged sword, actually, because I've done all these different things, and it's kind of, in some ways, worked against me because it, a lot of people 
don't know you know what is he that guy oh he's the mike and the mechanic guy okay <laughs> oh he's the nick L oh he's playing blues with it so in a little but you know i'm just grateful to have made a living <laughs> doing what i do i i like i prefer to get on with people for a start you know I'm, I'm, I, I can be a little bit passive, I suppose. And if there's a strong, uh, dominating force around, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to get in a fight with him about, <laughs> about music. I like harmony, you know. I like things to work. I like, I do like to get on with people, you know. And I've, as I say, I've, I like all different kinds of music. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I know that sometimes when someone gives you a note. You might you might think your first thought might be like oh what do you know but because <laughs> I think we all feel that way and I'm a writer if my editor gives me a note my first reaction is defensiveness you know and then I go all right no you're right hmm. um, are you good at taking a note can you can you take criticism uh, yeah I think so um, I don't like criticism so much <laughs> as as praise I much prefer praise <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not good with criticism regarding my own stuff, I don't think, which is why I never play my stuff for my wife. I've, I've learned that lesson. <laughs> I know, I know, I, I've stopped doing the, uh, well, this is, I've got this idea, I've got this, it's early days, but what do you, what, what do you think about this? And she'll go, well, that, uh, I'm not sure about that guitar. Yeah, don't pay attention to the bloody guitar. Uh, it's, she, she can't win, you know. If she says, oh, that's fantastic, I'll say, nah, she's just saying that so I, so I don't sulk, you know. So, uh, <laughs> so I've learned not to do that. But I'm a bit more accepting of myself now anyway. I'm a little bit stronger now, but, um, you know, because uh, back in the day when we, we, the first song I wrote was a big smash, which is a bit like going one goal up in the first minute of a soccer game, because then right. you... Uh, and um, I found that a bit tricky because people were saying, uh, you know, I'd write other stuff and they say, oh, yeah, that's good, but uh, have you got anything else like that? How long? <laughs> you know, so for a little while there, there was a bit, a bit of pressure there, but eventually got over that and just thought, you know, I do, I do, I do what I can do. It was the same, actually, when I was in the, you know, the Nick Lowe sort of stable. There's Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, squeeze in this kind of stable managed by a guy called Jake Riviera. And, you know, I'm writing these lovey-dovey three chord numbers and uh, people like Elvis are coming in with all these angles and things. And I, I was intimidated by that, you know, because I knew my, my stuff was a bit corny and a bit cliched, you know, but um, I stuck it out and, uh, <laughs> Here I am, and I'm, I think the cliches are working for me now. <laughs> <laughs> were you friends with Elvis? Yeah, well, I wasn't his best buddy, but no, we were all quite, we were all quite close. I mean, I was big friends with uh, Pete Thomas, who's the drummer in the Attractions. In fact, we we were living in uh, just outside Los Angeles, Ace, for a time being. This is about 1970 six something like that and pete had gone over there on a limb and was you know uh playing with all kinds of gigs like john stewart he played with for a while the country artist and a couple of those 
kinds of things. And then he, he came to us one day and he said, I got a call from Jake. He said he's got he's discovered this guy. He said he's like Buddy Holly on acid. And I've heard a few of the tapes and I'm going to go back and team up with him. And he said, oh, OK, great, Pete. This was Pete. He had hair down to his waist, you know. And we said, OK, well, we'll see you. And when six months later, when we back, went back to the UK and Pete's there, he's got the hair cut and it's all this new wave stuff. We were like, oh, my God. You, you know. <laughs> But um, well, you say where we made. I, I, you know, it, the first tour I did with Squeeze was um, Elvis Costello and the Attractions and Squeeze, plus two security guys, a tour manager, and uh, on a bus, one bus, <laughs> which was absolute mayhem, <laughs> as you can imagine. But. Um, I got to thank Elvis for one thing, and that was he suggested I sang "Tempted" with Squeeze. It was that was his suggestion, which I thank him for because that was great. Yeah, good suggestion. Um, and by the way, good singer, Elvis Costello. Yeah, of course, but a great songwriter. Yeah, and he an, an incredibly. But well, the one thing I love about Elvis is he he does love music. He he lives and breathes music, you know. So. Um, I always take my hat off to him in that respect. Also, the not afraid to try musical ideas. Um, some of them may, maybe don't always work, but he's certainly not afraid to try. Like, let's do something with Bacharach. Let's do something yeah. here, you know. Alan Toussaint and all that. Yeah. Yeah. No, great. As I say, I mean, uh, he lived, his father was a musician, a singer. And, um, he would love things like, you know, Sinatra and that, which I, I never got when I was younger. I never understood. I, only, I get it now. But um, all that sort of thing. Yeah. What was the shift for you in understanding Sinatra as a, as a singer? Like, when did, when did Sinatra land for you? And what, what was it that made sense? I don't know. I think it was probably because, you know, I knew I didn't know the early Sinatra. I knew the sort of 60s when he was not... Mm -hmm. Not great time for him. He's in the tuxedo and he's Mr. Smoothie. And we really, we used to think that was funny. You know, we I was into beat groups. But, um, I mean, it, funnily enough, recently, in the last 10 years, it's maybe even longer, I connected with this big band, a really good big band. They're based in Germany. And, of course, they know all that stuff. And I just got to find out how great that music is you know in, in, incredible musicianship and arrangements and sinatra yeah he's soulful guy actually yeah you know well the soulful singer for sure i mean he's incredible actually but as i say i think it was that 60s era when it wasn't really clicking and it wasn't really happening but um his earlier stuff and his later stuff definitely um before i ask about the record um i want to ask oh you yeah yeah, don't forget the new Paul Carrick album. Um, I wanted to ask you, because I've always been really curious, um, that you played on the first Smiths album. Um, did you actually get a chance to play with them, or was it a session you just laid down on your own? And also, what was your what was your impression of their music when you first heard it? Well, I didn't know anything about them. Um, it was a guy called John Porter, I think, produced their first album. And it was at that time when I was, you know, doing bits and pieces of sessions. I lived very near a studio in 
Chiswick Eden Studios, where a lot of the bands were going through there. And I'd often get a call late at night when the pubs are closed saying, could you just pop over and do a little bit of, you know. And, uh, but John sent me some demos and he said, I'm, I'm doing this band, the Smiths. They've got this huge cult following. It's a little bit different, he's saying, you know. And uh, I didn't know what to make of it, to be honest. Um, but I turned up at the, uh, at the studio and they had recorded a number of tracks and I had basically sat in on the overdubs. But um, Morrissey was there and Johnny Marr was there and they sort of would uh, give uh, Morrissey sort of this guy sitting in the corner. And um, I, I, I think he quite liked what I did. He... <laughs> He said, uh, I played Hammond on something, and he said uh, that it sounded like Reginald Dixon on acid. Now, Reginald Dixon was one of these guys that played the massive Wurlitzer organs, you know, the five keyboard things. So anyway, I took it as, I think I think he meant it as a compliment. Did the music, it was like nothing you'd ever heard before? Did you? Well, it wasn't that weird. It wasn't that it wasn't that weird, really. I mean, yeah. I, I think Morrissey was the more unusual aspect of it with his his style and what he, he brought to it. But the, the songs were, you know, kind of conventional, really, I, I guess. Yeah, it was and was that a band that you followed in terms of like, what, in terms of their output? Did you find them to be an interesting band or did you sort of lose track of them? I think I lost track. I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't, <laughs> it was funny because uh, one of my sons, when he, he went to the local, um, uh, a local music college many, many years later. And he came home one day and said, Dad, did you play on the Smiths album? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I did actually. Now you mentioned it. And I think I went up a definite few notches in the uh, in his esteem. Yeah, that's a cool thing to do. And did Kirstie McCall, was she ever in your scene with the Nick Lowe stuff? Was she ever around? Uh, the only thing I can remember with, Kirsty was doing um, now. What was it? Because I I I did some things with Madness. Yeah, and, you know Madness, of course. And I can't remember why, but um, I I think it may have been a charity thing, and I was part of the house band or something. And she came along and did a couple of songs. That's all. That's all I know. She was a very pleasant lady. She was very nice. Very nice. But um, no, that's the sum of my connection there. Your your new album, I love it. And one of the things I love about it is it actually plays like an actual album where it feels like there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's very seamless. And you sound fantastic. Was, in terms of the way that you sequence the songs, was that difficult? Or, or was it pretty obvious to you how you wanted to frame the record? No, I mean, it, it, it's what it is. I mean, the... Uh, I like that you think it kind of unfolds as a bit of a story. I, 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 I think, because um, we had another couple of running orders that didn't do, quite do that. And I think, I think it makes sense. I mean, it just evolved. I started with nothing. I had no songs or anything. And um, obviously I think subconsciously there's, the, there's this sort of lockdown aspect to some of the sentiments there 
but it wasn't sort of preconceived or anything like that. But I think it kind of makes sense. Yeah, because isn't the album closer behind closed doors? Isn't that the right? I know. I know. Well, there's no particular significance there other than I've always liked that song. Yeah. And um, how it's going to play in this day and age, I, uh, I'm not quite sure, actually. whether, But um, as I say, I've always loved the song. And I think it was one of the first ones I did when I came in to the studio originally, not looking to write anything, just wanted to put down a couple of tracks. And that's a song we often done at the sound check. And I, I put it down. Is it when you make a record now, is it, do you think to yourself, I don't know how people are going to consume this. It might just be a song on Spotify. Maybe they'll sit in the dark and listen to the whole thing. Is that just not your concern? Like you can't really think in terms of how people will consume it and just sort of put it out there and, and hope for the best. Yeah, not really. I mean, um, as I say, um, I think the agenda's changed a little bit now. I'm, I'm kind of interested in, 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 or I have been for, for the last sort of 20 years when I started doing things independently. It basically to have my own body of work, you know, and whatever happens to it, I'm not sure, but um, I'm, grad I'm gradually thinking more in terms of that, trying to put down um, stuff that I can do while I'm, while I'm doing it. I mean, because I, I, to, I must confess in my younger days, I was hoping to have a hit to survive, you know, and feed my family and keep a roof over our heads and, you know, not just have a career, which I thought, you know, it was kind of important to keep some kind of success. And so I guess I was following up, but now it's more about really, you know, trying to do some good things and as good as I can do sort of thing. I mean, I, I still think I'd, I, you know, if I got run over by a bus tomorrow, I'd say, no, I wouldn't say fantastic, <laughs> but, um, I, I, you know, I, it, I think it would be like, well, I had a, I, I managed to avoid getting a proper job. Um, I've had a fantastic time way beyond my expectations, but I will always feel I could have done better, not necessarily commercially, but just musically, you know, so hopefully I'm getting there. <laughs> Give me another that, 20, 30 years. <laughs> Isn't that the nature of an artist, though, is to kind of be feeling like the next thing will be the thing, like you're always chasing? Well, I don't know. I think for, for many and for me, certainly, I think it's probably what's kept me going and because I never felt that I've, you know, achieved that much, even though it's like, you're kidding, you know, you had, you've had a number one hits with, you sung this, you played with these. But, you know, I always... I'll always feel that I could do something better. But I think, you know, for other artists that burn a lot quicker than that, it's like they've made their stamp and, you know, they've made their quintessential album early on. And that's it, you know. But um, for me, I've got to keep trying. Is there a part of you also that wants to try something like, I'm going to make a reggae album or something crazy. oh yeah 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 i want to make i mean i've been do i've done the things with uh the big band yeah as i say some of it is a bit it was experimental for me you know to drop myself into that situation of like, oh, okay how can i can i 
sink or swim in this situation and some things have been like wow that's really good actually and other things are oh, a bit corny or a bit naff or what have you but i i've done during the course of this last year remotely i've i've done something with them and it's mainly a choice of uh, the repertoire we've left the sort of standard thing and it's more a bit more bluesy and r&b mm. and i think that's going to work really well um i want to make a country record really yeah i'd love to make a country record you know not the kind of modern country but um yeah definitely would like to do that and i think that could be done quite quickly and easily you know i'd, I'd come to nashville or something and find the, find the guys and and do it in a week that's what i'd like to do that i would love you know to anybody do I, I listen <laughs> <laughs> anyone listening wants to be a paul Harris country album um do you play guitar as well yeah yeah i can play guitar I'm, i mean i'm no great uh soloist or anything like that but no i've always as my brother played guitar so there's always a guitar knocking around and in my band i live i play 50 50 uh guitar and keyboards but it's rhythm you know yeah really, really. yeah yeah well i mean I, that's cool i'd love to hear you do a country album and um no i'm playing but, guitar on all the records all okay. the recent records yeah so you are okay yeah okay yeah i mean um it's interesting, the idea of you doing something like a country album, to me, just sounds like such a cool idea to try something like that would be, I mean, I think a lot of people would love to hear it. I don't know whether it's a cool idea. I don't know whether it would, you know, ever get played amongst the um, mainstream sort of, because you've got so many great country artists in that. But uh, it's one of those things, as I say, I, I want to have it in my, uh, my body of work, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, you start thinking historically about your about your career, and um, you know when I when I turned fifty a, a couple of years ago, I kind of thought, oh, there's a lot more road behind me than there is in yeah. front of me. Like I need to get to work on projects. I thought I'll get to that later. I need to get on yeah. that now. Yeah, that's true. Right. That's absolutely true. Yeah. You feel that way as well? Definitely. And I've got much less time than you have to be <laughs> fiddling around. But uh, <laughs> yeah. As Andy Fairweather always says, he uses the football analogy. Well, we're in the final third, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> Better make it count. Um, are you going to go on the road for the solo record as well as with Eric? Yeah. Or how, do you, how do you balance that? Yeah, no, I mean, um, definitely. Um, we have stuff in October. We hope that's going to be okay. Rescheduled a few of the UK shows that we weren't able to complete and we're going to netherlands for wow. eight to nine show holland or netherlands whatever you call it belgium and then in january as normal january february march is when we do our normal uk sort of theater tour we gave up trying to reschedule stuff and getting it cancelled so we just said no 2022 surely to god we're going to be able to get out then so that's what we hope uh, is getting to the states a pain in the neck these days, or is it is it okay? You mean with Eric? No, because just, I, with... I I mean I've not done anything myself yeah. as a solo artist for for a long time. Yeah, I don't know how it would work because it's the same old story that um, people don't know the name. They know the songs, they know the bands, but they don't know the name. And in the UK, even it was like that when I started doing it 
you know, solo independently, but I've just done it through releasing stuff, getting stuff on the radio, touring, doing the interviews. Yes, I'm Paul Garrick. I did this. I did that. I did the other. I mean, and by the way, I told my friends you were on the show today. Every single one of my friends was like, Paul Garrick, that's awesome. They all know who you are. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Well, but, you know, are there enough of them to fill a room in your in your town? San Francisco, do you think, where would I play? Where, where do you think I could play in San Francisco? I would have put you at Boz Cag's Club, Slims, but they closed down. But I could see you ah. filling Slims. Great American Music Hall, I could see you playing that place. I could see you filling it up. I've been there many, many years ago. The 70s, is it the same place? Yeah. I saw, um, I saw Van there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw Van. It, it wasn't one of his best nights, though. He was grumpy, you know, but it was still great. You know, <laughs> he has some grumpy nights, I, I think, from what yeah. I understand. Um, yeah. but that's a great club, that's a great room, yeah. Uh, well, that's one, it's my one regret actually of this whole thing. That I, you know, as I said, that the, doing the independent thing and the label and having my own little band, solid band, not just guys, and we tour and all, all the rest of it it's, it's been fantastic and i'm out there and i'm w playing and i'm in doing enjoying my music i'm making my records it's great but my one regret is not establishing something in the states because i do love coming to the states and i would i, I would have loved to have had my own little niche you know um probably a bit too late now i don't know we'll see well, all my friends and I were crazy about you, man. So uh, we could fill my living room. How about that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, congratulations on this album. I, lo I love everything you do. And this album to me is another winning entry into your body of work. And it's a lot Thank to you. be proud of. Um, Thank you. So very well done, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, but man, thank you for your time. Thank you for doing this. That's a pleasure. And it was great because we talked about some stuff. Uh, you do get a lot of the same questions. But, you know, it was great. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too, Paul Carrick. That was fun. Really nice guy. Just a, a terrific fellow and a, a fascinating conversation. What an amazing life he's had. Also amazing, his new album, One on One. Go get it. It is remarkable. Paul is, he's, you know, I mean, let's just, let's just get right to it. He is the man and he's got the voice. So buy the album. You'll be so happy. Paul Carrick. Net, and also go there to find out what's happening with Paul, where he's going to be, where he's touring, what he's doing. He's always doing a lot, so keep up. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. What makes us tick is all on that site. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast, or you can just email me, editor at Stereo Embers Magazine, 
Stereoembers.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend. It sounds like a lot. It's not. Thank you, as always, for listening to our show week in and week out. Let's close the program with a longer listen to Paul Carrick's You're Not Alone. Enjoy it, and I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. When you need a shoulder you can cry on I'll be there to wipe your tears away When it takes someone you can rely on You can call me any time of day Someone who really cares When you need Someone who'll always love you You're not alone You're not alone When you're lost And stumbling in the darkness I'll be there to share a little light Once again
not a long way 